hi there, ho there. You're as welcome as can be, all my guys, gals, and non-binary pals. I'm so happy to have you back with me for another episode. I hope you are all safe and happy, or at the very least, getting by. And please just know if you are struggling in any way right now, whether that be emotionally or mentally, physically, from being ill or injured, or if the recent unrest has caused you any sort of stress or despair, just please know, as always, you are not alone. Um, I am here for you. I may not know you, but I care about you. Uh, podcasters really do care about their listeners. The podcast community, particularly the true crime genre I'm learning, um, is very supportive, generous, compassionate, and I feel very lucky to be a part of it. I've gotten to meet and get to know and work with, at this point, lots of really nice people. And I'm very excited to be working with one of those people today, a fellow murderino and true crime enthusiast, my pal Joe from the Still Unknown podcast. Everyone, welcome, Joe. We're so happy to have you here. <laughs> Hi, I am so happy to be here. You you can't see me, but I am. I did a little like fist pump when you gave me that little intro there. Did you? Yay! Just because so just because it, it has me so jazzed up right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you called me a murderino, so I had to call you a murderino because that is what we are, and we wear that badge with pride and honor. <laughs> yes, because we just recorded my podcast yesterday, which was a lot of fun and uh, a lot of fun, and also very, very a difficult case to talk about, definitely. And you, yeah, picked. yeah I mean, uh, I got to. It does feel weird saying something's really fun. Oh, when you're when yeah. you're when you're talking about such <laughs> yeah. a fucked up story. Yeah. Mhm. I feel that way sometimes too when I say, "Oh, I have so much fun doing my podcast." And people are like, "Don't you talk about like people being murdered?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, that part's not fun. The <laughs> the production yeah. and and the getting to talk about it and getting people's stories out there, you know. Uh, I, I like to make sure people know, you know, I don't I don't like true crime because I think murder is cool. I think murder is really bad, um, if I'm being honest. Hot <laughs> take there, murder is bad. Um, <laughs> I just think it's I'm, important. I'm glad, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you could clear that up. Yes, I just want like, to make we, sure everyone we, was aware. <laughs> we, do not advocate, we do not advocate murder. <laughs> no, we do not. We do not. Um yeah, no, I, I just think it's important to talk about these people in these cases so that they are not forgotten. And a lot of people think, you know, I mean, the, the, the news cycle in this country is so crazy. You'll hear about a case for months and months and months, and then it'll just drop off and it will never be talked about again. Um, so, and that's why it's important to keep the stories out there, especially in stories like these where there's really no closure whatsoever. But before we get to what we will be talking about today, um, Mr. Joe, I have a couple of questions that I like to ask guests on my show. So uh, would you mind if I uh, picked your brain for a minute here? No, bring it on. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> so since you are my first fellow podcaster to um, guest host with me, I'd love it if you could just tell my audience a little bit about your podcast and uh, what inspired you to, to get started on that? Well, my podcast, as you mentioned, is called Still Unknown. It it covers all unsolved cases. And what what got me interested in doing that is I love – I've been wanting to start my own true crime podcast for a while. And mm -hmm. I, I particularly 
listen to a wide variety of true crime podcasts, but I particularly have more of a, I'm more drawn towards unsolved cases. Yeah. Just, uh, just because uh, they, obviously because they still need answers and also because those are more fascinating to me because they're more open for theory. And interpretation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, aside from, you know, as, as fascinating as it is to watch a Ted Bundy documentary, like, you know everything about him already. Yeah, to, you, like, to be you honest, know, yeah, people like Ted Bundy are, like, boring to me now because they've been talked about so much, which is fucked up when you think about it because we shouldn't be desensitized to that. I mean, he still killed a lot of women, and we're all just like, ugh, come on, Ted Bundy yeah. again? We know that story. I know this murder already. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, you talk, um, you talk about, like, any case that has thought like you know the story, it's always been fascinating to me to not know the full story and kind of put together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. your own theories and yeah, because I grew I grew up with the show Unsolved Mysteries and oh, fantastic that's, show. That's what got me into it. A, a majority of my episodes have been about cases that were featured on Unsolved Mysteries. That yeah. still aren't solved. That's awesome. So, and is I mean, there? That, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I I would say that show is probably my biggest influence oh, that's on awesome. what I'm doing on my podcast. Well, is there? Um, I, I'm jumping ahead a little bit because this is the last question, but I'll just ask this now. Um, is there a particular case, like a particular missing persons case, that? Um, you know, you've always been really interested or invested in, or is there a case that, like, really got you hooked into into this stuff? Like, I tell people all the time, um, not only was, like, the Elizabeth Smart case kind of like my first eye-opening dive into the world of all of this crap, um, but, like, in particular, like, the Alyssa Turney case, I've been following that since I was, like, young. I remember hearing about that for the first time as a kid on Dateline in 2020, and it's still going on to this day. So are there any cases like that that you can think of that are just like, yeah, I've been following this for, for a while ever since I heard about it? Well, the I, the first case I can remember where I saw something on it and I was immediately like, okay, I have to follow everything that's going on with it. I'm so hooked. I'm so captivated and hooked into what's going on. I need to follow up like anytime there's anything new on it. Yeah. Was probably the West Memphis Three. Oh, I love that case. When no, I don't first, love it, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, like the the first time I saw Paradise Lost. Oh my God! Yeah. It it like really drew me in. I'm like, oh God. Trigger warning to anybody who plans on watching the Paradise Lost documentaries. Um, just so you know, in like the opening seconds of the first one, they show pretty graphic photos from the crime scene. Um, and I did not know that that was going to happen. And it made me very upset <laughs> because I don't want to look at that stuff. Uh, so yeah. if you don't want to look at that stuff and you want to watch that documentary, cover your eyes for the first, like, 30 seconds to a minute because they don't warn you. They just put it up there for everyone to see. <laughs> yeah. But – um. You mentioned like missing persons case. I don't. I'm pretty fascinated with uh, another three. The Springfield three. Oh my God! Yeah, I know that case. 
the the two girls in like the one mother who disappeared and on graduation mom. night. Yeah, that whole yeah. case is insane. Have you talked about that at all on your podcast? I it's on my list, but I ha- I haven't done I. For the most part, I stuck with. I've mostly done cases, aside from a couple. I've mostly done cases that aren't. Not many other podcasts have covered. Yeah, which is great. So, That's always a good thing to do. Try to make so, yourself but, more. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I know the Springfield Three has been covered by. Yeah. A bunch of other podcasts. I mean, I'm. Go- I want to do it at some point, but. Mm-hmm. Well, if yeah. you're interested in having help with that, hit me up because I that case is just so fascinating to me. It's yeah, it's it's such a mystery. It's so so crazy. Um, well, definitely, I'll definitely hit you up then because we talked about yesterday. Like we're going to do this. I want to do this more because we had. Heck yeah. Again, I feel we're saying it's such a good time. Yeah, I know. It still feels <laughs> weird to say. It's still no. People enjoy. We we became podcasters because it's something we enjoy, and and we are passionate about this topic because we want to help people. So it's coming from a good place. It's not like it, we're trying to, to glorify bad people. And you talk. You mentioned this uh, when you did my podcast that we're you and I are like minded and like not just in true crime, but in our, the way we view social justice and. Oh God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you, you mentioned it yesterday, but you and I are like two very like-minded people in yes. many regards. As, as, um, as somebody with a podcast and a platform and a, you know, you've got, you've got a couple of hundred followers on Instagram. You've got people who listen to you and who are, are fans of your show. And I know that you have been, vocal like I have on social media about how you feel about the recent events um, with, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, all of these people and the Black Lives Matter movement. I know that you are a very vocal supporter of that. Have you, as a podcaster or as a person with a platform, have you received any sort of backlash for that? Because I have not. All of my listeners, everybody who follows me on on social media, have been very supportive of my stance and me using my podcast to to talk about this stuff. So I was just wondering, have you had anybody be like, "Hey, I don't agree with what you're saying," or be like rude about it? <laughs> I have not have had that either yet myself because I I don't feel like I'm a big enough podcaster really. Like the people who do listen to me know what I'm about anyway. So yeah, yeah. You look. I, I don't know why I do this myself, but I've made I've made the error of looking at reviews for like my favorite murder recently. Oh really? And okay. They're 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 the podcast that get the backlash over this stuff. Right, because they're so yeah. popular and everyone knows about yeah, them. Like, yeah, like and for, I hope I get those reviews honestly because <laughs> right. How amazing would it be to lose followers? Because they don't agree with your social justice I, standpoint. That's like the dream. <laughs> um, well, the episode I put out yesterday with you was episode 16. The, the intro I did for episode 15 was uh, after the George Floyd thing. and Oh, my goodness. And after Blackout Tuesday. And so I put in a little, I put in a little, like, message up top for, like, a two-and-a-half-minute long message or something like that. Yeah. I, bas- I basically touched on it and I stated my feelings and I even said like 
all the other, like, a bunch of the other true crime podcasters I'm connected with on social media, they each posted something like, I'm sure I'm going to lose followers for this or or lose Yeah, this a lot of people have said stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I said that, like, I mentioned that in that episode, and I said, you know what, if you want to unsubscribe because I'm putting this out there, go right ahead. Yep, it's like the trash right. taking itself out. <laughs> I'm like that's how I feel. That's how I feel. Because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue human rights and basic human morality and compassion with somebody. Yeah, and if you if you are telling me that you don't believe in Black Lives Matter, we don't have a difference in opinion, we have a difference in morality. That is just irreconcilable in my absolutely, opinion. Absolutely and I also stated this uh not just that but like if you if you take issue with what i'm saying you are missing the overall point of my podcast you really are yeah because it's like my i cover cases that there has been no justice oh my god yeah absolutely it's and and this is one of them exact and the same thing with like brianna taylor where those officers still haven't been charged yet the last i heard no they have not um, so, but the FBI is actively investigating it. And with the way things have gone with the Arbery case and Floyd case, I'm hoping that something good will come for Brianna's family. At least I, God, I hope so, so, so much. Because, of course, when it's a black woman who, you know, black women are historically some of the most vulnerable and marginalized people in society, of course, she's the one who hasn't gotten any justice yet. So we just got to keep fighting for it, people. We got to yeah, keep fighting I... for it. Did I tell you the other day? Um, well, okay, so back when I first made my um, Hearing No Evil Instagram, uh, the true crime guys followed me. So okay. I was pretty excited when they followed me. And then I messaged one of them to get his recommendations on what sort of mixer I should get because I had been wanting to get a soundboard slash mixer. Um, and then when I got it, I posted it on my Facebook. Not Facebook. I posted it on the Instagram, and the True Crime guys liked that picture, and I was just over the fucking moon. So, Michael or Lauren, if you're listening to this, I love you, and I hope that's not weird. <laughs> <laughs> I love you in a platonic way. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, Mr. Joe, are you goodness, are you ready for a whole lot of frustration? Yeah, we we had it yesterday with my case. Now it's time for to do it with you today. Yeah. What's extra sad, of course, about this case is that it involves a child. Um and we are talking about the story of Relisha Tanay Rudd who was an eight-year-old African-American girl from the Washington, D.C. area who disappeared in February of 2014. So she's been gone for six years now. Um, There's lots of digitally created images online of what she might look like now. Um, But when she was a little girl, she had braids in her hair and those You know, those cute little, like, um, pom-pom things that little girls put at the top of their braids. Um, Just the biggest smile, big, bright brown eyes, and absolutely 
adorable little girl, just one that you would see and think, you know, she's so cute, she's so sweet, you know, anybody would be lucky to, to have her as a daughter. Um, but Relisha's life was very difficult, unfortunately. And this difficulty started long before she was born. Um, are you familiar with the idea of the cycle of poverty or, um, you know, cyclical poverty, homelessness, generational poverty, sometimes it's called that? I have a general sense of it, yeah. Yeah. That is very much what was going on with Relisha's family. You know, it was generational poverty. The family, um, you know, passed on mental health and addiction issues from generation to generation. Um, so before we can really talk too much about Relisha, I need to give you a little bit of background on Relisha's mother. And her name is Shamika Young. Shamika is problematic to say the very least. <laughs> um, at best, she is another unfortunate victim in this case, uh, but at worst, she is complicit in some way. And honestly, I'm not sure what to believe when it comes to Shamika's involvement. I do not think that Shamika killed her daughter and covered it up. I do not believe that at all. I don't think that Shamika willingly handed Relisha over to someone knowing that she would be taken or harmed. I don't think she sold Relisha or anything like that. I don't think, I really truly believe that Shamika did not want this to happen to her daughter. When I say that she was complicit, I mean that she did not take the necessary steps to do her motherly duties to protect her daughter, if that, is, if that makes sense. And I think she's far more responsible for what happened and she's willing to admit because she realizes how bad she messed up and she's gone into self-defense mode. Um, either because she didn't want to lose her other children or she didn't want people judging her. But we will see at the very least, Shamika needed extensive support to be a mother. Motherhood was not easy at all for her. And that has a lot to do with her own backstory. So all I ask is that, you know, anyone listening right now, Reserve your judgment of Shamika till the end. You will be infuriated with her, most likely, and you will be completely shocked and baffled as to how a mother could allow her vulnerable daughter to be taken advantage of. But um, Shamika has her share of issues. And, you know, someone argues she's an unfit mother, but it has nothing to do with any potential drug abuse. I don't believe there was any. You know, there's no record that she was addicted to anything. Um, I couldn't even really find a criminal record for her, so there's no, you know, there's no, there's no indication that she was a violent, horrible, bad person by any means. Um, it has everything to do with the fact that, like I said, when it mattered most, that, you know, she didn't do what she needed to do to keep her daughter safe. So let's get into Shamika's background just a bit. You ready? Yeah. Okay. Also, just feel free to cut in whenever you want, honestly. Just cut me off, because I am known to just talk. <laughs> no, I'm, so I'm literally just, I'm willing to just let you go. <laughs> uh, okay, I know, I know, but but if you have something to say, say it, okay? Um, <laughs> okay, good. So, Shamika and her mother, Melissa, okay? So Melissa is Relisha's grandmother. Um they the, their family unit became involved in the foster system when Shamika was 9. So Melissa was suffering from drug addiction. And she was living in a homeless shelter with Shamika and her siblings. 
but she was eventually arrested for drug possession, and Shamika went to live with her maternal grandmother for a short time, which is always ideal in a situation where a child has to enter foster care. Most of the time, um, we as social workers are going to try to place, not that I've ever worked for a foster care system because I haven't, but I've worked with agencies that deal with the foster care system, if that makes sense. Um, so I know for a fact that they will always try to put the child with a family member or a close friend to minimize the trauma of being removed from their family. I mean, which makes sense when you think about it. Um, but unfortunately, Shamika was eventually moved from her maternal grandmother's home um, into an unfamiliar foster family. So Melissa's parental rights were terminated within a few years. Um, are you aware of what it means for a, a – I'm sorry if that sounds condescending. I'm not trying to I'm, – I'm, like, legitimately asking, like, do you, do you know what it means for, for their parental rights to be terminated? Uh, basically, they lose custody. Yeah, yeah, they lose all custody, and it's, you know, they basically – they don't have that right to their child anymore. Um, and – you know, I've done some volunteer work with children in the foster care system as a court-appointed court special advocate. So um, court-appointed court special advocates, basically, they just um, they, they go to court proceedings with children. They, they advocate for them. They talk to them to kind of get a sense of what they're going through and how they're feeling. Um, and here's the thing. I know from experience that the court is only going to move to terminate a parent's rights if that is the last resort. Uh, from what I understand, the goal of any family court is reunification between parents and children, as long as the children will be safe and cared for with that parent, obviously. Um, and in all of the cases I was involved in, the court gave the parents every opportunity to do what they needed to get their kids back, whether that was help you find a job, um, help you go back to school, help you find somewhere to live, go to therapy, go to rehab, um, do whatever you need to do in order to be a successful parent. Um, rights are usually only terminated if the parent literally just doesn't do any of that stuff. Um, and I saw cases where that happened, where we were like, okay, you need to do this, you need to do that, here's how you can do it, here's how we can help you, and the parent just didn't do any of it. Um, so, and, and, and because of that, their parental rights are eventually terminated. So I'm not judging Melissa because we don't know her story and we don't know what happened with her or why her parental rights were terminated, why she never got Shamika back. But this abandonment and rejection by her mother must have played some role in, in Shamika's psychological formation. And I would make the argument that, um, psychologically speaking, Shamika definitely had attachment issues. Which, mean, which would definitely affect her eventual relationship with her own children. Um, so any, any thoughts on that so far? I'm just going to, like, check in with you periodically. <laughs> no, I'm, I've, I've just been listening. I mean, I can – I'm getting a sense of, like, where she was coming from. So Melissa, uh, Shamika's Melissa? mother, is yes. – like, she lost uh, – she lost the parental rights just from yes. keeping mm -hmm. up with – okay. Yep, yeah. And then Shamika was placed into the foster care system along with her siblings. Uh, Shamika was never adopted and eventually aged out of the system when she was 18, as many children unfortunately do. She had never truly had a real home or family to call her own and had been passed from 
home to home so much because she was understandably struggling. Um, it's reported that she had really bad anger management issues. She could get very belligerent and even violent. And many of the families who took her in requested that she be transferred within a few months because they just couldn't handle her. But the issue, but that's the issue right there, is that Shamika didn't need to be handled. She needed to be treated. Uh, she had reportedly told several of her foster parents that she heard voices in her head telling her to do bad things and would become overwhelmed with anger to the point that she would begin to threaten others and destroy things and try to harm herself. So she sounds like she has some sort of mental I'm not saying mental illness, but definitely there had to have been some anger management there, um, some depression and anxiety. Just She was not well-adjusted because of her background and her environment. She needed therapy and intensive support and life skills training and anything that would have just helped her. But most of the time, and especially when Shamika was growing up, these services are just not available to a poor black girl in the foster care system. Uh, so once again, when, when was she growing up? Uh, how old was she when she had Relisha? She was 19 when she had Relisha, and Relisha was born in 2005. So Shamika was probably born in, like, the late 80s. 80s. Yeah, going through the foster care system in the 90s, which, I mean, I don't know if that was a particularly good or particularly bad time to be in the foster care system. All I know is that oversight has always been an issue in that system because of overworked social workers, people slipping through the cracks, you know. And and she's in Washington, D.C., where there are already where – the, where the system is already overloaded. You know what I mean? So she yeah. just had a lot of things working against her, unfortunately. Um, one significant event that I'm sure deeply traumatized and affected her happened when she was 12 years old. She was taken into a foster home run by a couple who were, like, especially experienced in helping traumatized children. So they thought they were pretty well-equipped to help her. And this couple had even adopted Shamika's younger brother. So they were, like, his legal parents. And they were thinking, okay, well, we'll take her in and see if we can help her, and then maybe we can adopt her as well. Um, instead, they ended up taking her to a mental health crisis center on two separate occasions, for having violent meltdowns. Um, and Shamika claims while she was held at this mental health center, she was forcibly restrained and pumped full of sedatives. So not good to say wow. the least. Um, wow. And I yeah. mean, this is, this is complex trauma at this point. This is trauma on top of trauma. It's prolonged, it's extensive, and she's not getting any help for it in between. Um, so eventually Shamika was removed from that family by the state, knowing full well her brother now had a new family, and she had once again been turned away. I mean, can you even imagine how much that must have hurt her to know that these people had adopted her brother and loved her brother, but they didn't want her? I mean, no, it's I just... can't imagine. And she's only 12. She's still a child. She, yeah, it's just horrible. So she left the system when she was 18, and about a year and a half later, Relisha was born. Uh, Relisha's full name, like I said, was Relisha Tanay Rudd. Um, so let's just set the scene here a little. Shamika is a young, poor, single African-American mother with a history of instability and mental health issues and with basically no support system to speak of. Uh, 
Melissa, Shamika's mother, had kind of like come back into her life, especially once Relisha was born. But she she is never a fully like stable support system for anybody. You get what I mean? Like she's always Melissa always has her own issues. So it's not like she can help Shamika out that much that much. Um also we don't have a whole lot of information on Relisha's birth father. I know his first name was Irving. I know that he um had a bit of a spotty history as far as like child mistreatment. He apparently was the father of two other children and one of those children had died of child abuse. I don't know a whole lot about Relisha's dad, but he isn't around at all, basically. Um, so not too long after Relisha is born, about a year and a half later, um, Shamika gives birth to her little brother. So Relisha has one full blood brother. Unsurprisingly, the Department of Child Services became involved with Relisha and her little family very early on. In July of 2007, when Relisha was two, social workers came to the house and discovered there was inadequate food in the house for Relisha and her infant brother. And Relisha exhibited a few injuries that could be consistent with physical abuse. We don't know what the specifics, that's a hard word to say, of these injuries are, but suffice it to say, it was enough for the social workers to be concerned. However, it could not be proven how exactly Relisha had received these injuries. Um, and I mean, she was a toddler at the time. So a lot of the time when you see bruises and things like that on a toddler, it's not crazy to say that they could have just fallen down and bumped their knee or their head or something. I mean, that happens to my niece and nephew all the time when they were kids. So, oh, yeah, but it, the, it, it happens to all of us. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But at the same time, they did take note of this, um, and, and they remained on social services radar. Uh, for the first couple years of Relisha's life, her father and mother were together, but they eventually split up, and like I said, Relisha saw him only sporadically for the rest of her life. Shamika met a man named Antonio Wheeler. Um, he's important, so remember the name Antonio because he's going to come up a lot. Oh, and yeah. they had two little boys together. Um, so Relisha is now the older sister to three brothers, and she took her responsibilities as a big sister very seriously, as we often see with children from situations of instability and slash or neglect. She very much took on, you know, an adult role that she should not have had to do for her little brothers. She taught them things. She protected them. She made sure they were clothed and fed. You know, she she was like a little mom to them, which she should not have had to do. But she did it because she loved them and because she was just such a sweet girl. Um, and it's so sad to think that she had to do that so early on in her life when she was the one who should have been being taken care of by her mother. Um, unfortunately, the Rudd-Wheeler family unit was still insecure at best. So at this point, I don't know if Shamika and Antonio ever were officially married. I don't think they were, um, but we refer to Antonio as Relisha's stepdad, just so everybody knows. And he okay. never, like, officially adopted Relisha or her brother. So they, the family was moving from apartment to apartment, never staying in one place too long. They were evicted or um, they were evicted many times due to their inability to pay the rent. 
2010, so Alicia is five now, the Department of Child Services social workers were called again because one of Alicia's little brothers had to have a surgery of some kind. And his parents were supposed to bring the boy back to the hospital for an important follow-up appointment, but they never did. So this is considered medical neglect, and the hospital alerted the authorities. And they were like, hey, go check on this family. Social workers were shocked and disgusted to find Relicia's home a horrible, inhabitable mess with trash and filth littered all over the floor and even more scary, cigarette butts and ashes everywhere. It was like the parents were just walking around the house smoking, ashing it onto the floor, and when they were done, just tossing the butt to the ground. Like, how disgusting and Ooh. dangerous is that? Yeah. And I mean, like, what if one of them had still been lit and, like, the kids had burned themselves on it or it had set the place on fire? And to make it even worse, Relisha had asthma, and they were smoking in the apartment like that. Like, it, Was there ugh. carpeting in there? Uh, honestly, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, most, yeah, I don't know. I've been, it, I mean, I've it, been, it, it, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, if there's carpeting, like, I'm surprised, like, it never caught oh. fire. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is such a good point. Yeah. That was just a really, really bad situation for Relisha and her very young brothers to be in. This rightfully prompted a period of ongoing supervision where social workers would come by the house once a week or every two weeks to make sure it was clean, the kids were fed and uninjured, all of that. Um, although not trying to malign social workers in any way, because I basically am one. Um, I'm a, you know, I'm a school counselor, but I don't have a counseling degree, so I'm considered more of a social worker, really. So, I mean, I completely... I, I, I sympathize with these people. I really do. Um, and they have very difficult and demanding jobs. We know that people fall through the cracks, and many times a family or a child is not supervised as much as they should be. And I don't know if that was the case with Relisha's family, but I don't know. But the, the social workers seemed, um, you know, satisfied enough that, you know, the situation had been remedied you know, and they didn't need to remove Relisha from her mother's care. So that was the decision they made. Uh, Relisha and her family lived in a motel for a short time before eventually moving into the D.C. General Family Homeless Shelter. Um, I think it's worth noting here that the homelessness rate in Washington, D.C. is twice that of the national average. There are a lot of homeless people in Washington, D.C. I have never been there myself. Uh, but my boyfriend has been there a few times, and he told me, yeah, um, you see them pretty much everywhere. Um, have you ever been to Washington, D.C.? No, um, there there have been a few uh, school trips to Washington, D.C., but I never got to go. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I didn't know that the homelessness problem there was so bad. It's twice that of the national average. It's, it's pretty bad. Um 16.6% of D.C.'s residents are living in poverty, and 9.3 persons for every 1,000 residents are homeless. That's pretty staggering. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And I got those statistics from um, an official Washington, D.C. social services organization website. Um, I'm not, I'll put it in the show notes because I don't have it right in front of me, but those are pretty recent statistics, I think from like at least um, January 2019. Um, so the shelter that Relisha and her family moved into is 
gigantic. Um, it was built within the shell of the old D.C. General Hospital, which is actually great because that meant it was able to house, lo house lots of families and also provide important services such as parenting and anger management classes, medical care, big kitchens to make lots of food. Um, and since it was so big, families were able to sometimes have their own private rooms with their own bathrooms, and Relicious Family had one of those rooms. Um, I'm not saying that this place was like a five-star hotel because it definitely wasn't. In fact, um, this shelter is no longer open, um, partially because of what happened to Relisha and also partially because I guess there was a lot of problems with like mold and pests and um, stuff like that. So I'm not saying it was like a five-star hotel because it definitely wasn't. Um, it, it, it was an improvement, I think, to the disgusting, dirty conditions that Relisha had been used to living in because at least this place was clean, you know, um, and it was safe. Uh, it was very safe, in fact. Security at the shelter was very high. There were curfews. There were nightly room checks. Um, and there were many rules the residents had to abide by. Uh, no one came in or out of the building without being checked at the front door. Every exit and corridor had video surveillance. There were security guards. Uh, families with private rooms had to be let into the room by a staff member. They weren't allowed to have their own key. Um, and there were especially many safety measures regarding children. So children needed to be supervised at all times. They could not be in the cafeteria alone or in the rooms alone, and they could not leave the building without a parent present, and that becomes important later. So remember, Relisha is not allowed to leave this shelter unless her mother is with her, or Antonio. I guess Antonio would also count as a parent, but mostly Shamika, because that is her birth mother, her legal guardian. All right. Yeah, so this place was secure. There was a lot of emphasis on keeping the children safe. Um, and it seems from the outside, this is a place where maybe Relisha could have thrived and gotten more support while getting the nutrition and medical attention she needed. Um, but unfortunately, this is the place where Relisha would meet the man who we are almost certain is responsible for her disappearance. Um, before we get into that, uh, actually, no, we are getting into that. Here we go. <laughs> um, uh, again, any any thoughts so far? That That's the entire backstory. We are now getting into the actual crime. Um, no, I've I just been following along, and uh, it's obvious uh, it was a tough situation from the start, so. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and what should be noted also is that, like, Relisha doesn't really have a – stable adult in her life because not even, I mean, even her extended family has their issues. You know what I mean? Um, and well, well, we're going to talk. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, how, um, how is she with school though? At school. So that was like the one place that she did feel safe and, and valued and appreciated. She was adored by her teachers and she loved them. Her teachers took, um, you know, like her teachers, she was definitely like flagged as being a high risk, high need student. But the issue with that, and she did get like the, the extra attention and love and support from her teachers. But at the same time, you know, these, these are teachers in a Washington, D.C. public school district. 
where lots of kids they know come to school dirty or hungry or or don't know where they're going to be sleeping that night. They are, so these teachers, you know, they don't just have one relisha to focus on. They might have 10 or 15 relishas in their class alone that they also need to try to dedicate some extra time to. And so it's, it's, it's difficult, but she was very much loved and appreciated and valued by, by her school community. And it, it is in fact, thanks to them that people even noticed she was gone in the first place. So anybody who tries to say that her teachers didn't do enough, I will adamantly argue that that is not true. They, they did what they could. They did their best for her, I think. It just unfortunately was too late at that point. Um, but yeah, anything else before I continue? No. Um, I, I, I mean, I just, I just wondered like how, if, if there were, if, she ever there ever might have been a chance for her because yeah. with with her mother yeah. uh, with the home she came up in and the it sounded like the odds were definitely stacked against her mm-hmm. and yeah it yeah I I just I just wondered if like there was ever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if there was ever like any like uh if it wasn't all grim for her. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what I mean. I do, yeah. And honestly, yeah. I um, her family, her family should have been the one to to realize that something was wrong and something was not okay. They should have been the ones to stop it. And unfortunately, it's partially their fault that this happened uh, because they were irresponsible. So it's okay. I will say this though. Um, a lot of people point out. A lot of people. Are, oh, excuse me. I need to burp. Hang on. <laughs> All right, aims that away from the camera. That's editing out later. Um, Do it but, on mic next time. <laughs> right? Mic, not camera. Wow. Um, <laughs> no, but um, so a lot of people are like, okay, why wasn't Relisha removed from her mother um, when social services came and found the home to be disgusting? You know? Why? And then while they were living at the shelter in November of 2013, so about two months before Relisha goes missing, there is another incident at the shelter. You know how I just went through all of that stuff about how the kids basically had to be supervised at all times when they were in the shelter? Yeah. Well, Shamika and Antonio were not very good about following that rule. Um, (laughs) Unsurprisingly, they would leave their kids unattended all the time. um, And there was an incident that social services got involved in where I guess the kids were unsupervised and one of them got hurt. And then another one of them had been like pushed to the ground and slapped causing a split lip. One of the boys had, and they were thinking that Shamika had done that, but she, you know, she denied hitting her kids. Antonio denied hitting the kids. And the reason they were not removed from Shamika and Antonio's care at that point is because social services, they they don't want to do that unless it's absolutely necessary because removing a child from their family is extremely traumatic. Um, and from what I understand, you know, Relisha also was like, no, my mom didn't hit me. I want to stay with my mom because she still loved her mom because she's her mom, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. Uh, huh. So a lot of people are like, if she had been removed, from her mother at that point, she would have been saved. But 
but there was no reason to remove her. There really wasn't, which I know is horribly infuriating, but it's true. Yeah, but um, uh, I mean, hindsight being twenty twenty. Hindsight is twenty twenty, exactly. <sighs> now, like I said, they weren't great about supervising the kids in the shelter the way they should have been. Um, the children could not get any food from the cafeteria unless one of the parents were with them. And I know this sounds cruel, but I, for a short time, worked at a domestic violence shelter where women and children would stay for, um, you know, extended periods of time. And we had a cafeteria there. And kids were not allowed to just go in there and get food. And there's a reason for that. It's because you don't know what a kid might be allergic to or if the kid even knows what they're allergic to. You don't want to give them something that could, you know, accidentally cause a reaction. It's just it's just a safety thing, you know, in all of these things. It's just a safety thing. You don't give the kids any food unless their parents are with them. It sounds mean, but there's a reason for it. Um, so, yeah, it's understandable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and Shamika and Antonio would often oversleep in the morning or be too tired to go downstairs in time to get breakfast for their children. Relisha and her brothers would go by themselves to get food, but of course would be turned away. Um, and this is how Relisha came to the attention of Khalil Tatum, a man who worked as a janitor for the shelter. Sorry, if I get quiet for a second, it's because I'm making sure my dog's okay. <laughs> um, she's, she's sleeping next to me and she keeps twitching. <laughs> oh. I think she's chasing rabbits in her sleep again. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, she's good, or I just popped open when I said rabbit. All right. <laughs> so, um, Khalil Tatum, the janitor at the shelter, was regarded as being a very gentle man who showed great care and compassion for young children, and he seemed to be drawn to Relisha from the day he first encountered her. Khalil began setting aside food for Relisha and her brothers and sneaking it to them, always making sure they got something to eat, which was not allowed, but I mean, it sounds like a nice thing to do at first. Yeah. Um, at first. Khalil's interest in the children very quickly narrowed to just Relisha. He began buying her little gifts, such as cute things to put in her hair or small toys, just things a seven- to eight-year-old girl would love that her parents were either unable or unwilling to buy for her. Uh, Relisha also really did not like living at the shelter, so she was ecstatic when Khalil offered to take her shopping, to the park, to the movies, to the arcade, all of these fun places she never got to go. He even at one point bought her a tablet, you know, like one of those little little tablet things that kids play with. Like an um, iPad? Yeah, he bought her one yeah. of those. And he took her to see Disney on Ice, which I would love to see Disney on Ice. <laughs> That sounds like I am 27 years old and I wouldn't be able to resist that. If someone was like, I got you Disney on Ice tickets, I'd be like, of course I'll get in your van. Um, Have you ever seen Disney on Ice? Because I saw, I saw it once when I was maybe, I don't know, 10 or 11. No, I've never seen it. What was it like? I, I, I honestly just remember going. I don't remember very much about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining, I mean... You know, back then, I'm sure it was a lot of, like, the classic characters. I think now it would be a, a lot of Elsa and Anna. It would probably just be all Elsa and Anna. Those are, like, the only characters Disney cares about anymore. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I went, it was, like, Beauty and the Beast. 
was. Oh, see, that was the good stuff. I yeah. I like Frozen. Don't get me wrong. I like Frozen. It's adorable, but it's not as good as the classics. <laughs> yeah. It's just not. It's just not the same. We're getting super off topic. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, like I said, he was doing all of this stuff for her. Shamika, Antonio, Melissa, um, you know, Relicious Ants. No one in the family saw any issue with any of this. They did not think it was at all strange or inappropriate that Khalil paid so much attention to Relisha. In fact, they were grateful for all the time he spent with her and all the things he bought her. They referred to him as Relisha's godfather. So that's how much they trusted this man and welcomed him into their lives. Shamika would let Relisha go with Khalil for hours upon hours of unsupervised time together and eventually even let him take Relisha overnight to, as he claimed, stay with him and his grandmother. Can you, I just can't wrap my head around that. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. And this happened many, many times. Um, Khalil, now Khalil did have a granddaughter, and this is confirmed, he did, um, and Relisha reported several times having spent time with the granddaughter as well while out with Khalil. So sometimes he would take Relisha and his granddaughter out to do things at the same time, and Relisha, you know, she was she was friends with this other little girl. She really liked hanging out with her. So uh, it so, seems, um, so Khalil's, you said his granddaughter, so he's an older guy. He is older. He is 51 years old at the okay. time that this is all happening. All right. So, yeah, 51, and he's hanging out with an eight-year-old girl all the time. I really don't like that, not one little bit. Um, I mean, I I get maybe an huh, – I, I don't know how to word this. Uh, I, I can understand feeling sympathy towards a young girl who's in a bad situation. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if if I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to. I know, and I, I think I do. I understand what you're saying. That from the outside, it seems like he's just trying to give an attention-starved little girl the attention she wants. Yeah. You know, and but, it's, yeah. But where, but where it crosses in, like him taking, like them spending all this time together. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, I. It's, I, it, like my, it's starting to like raise some flags. Yeah, like so. if it, it just doesn't. I don't know. I mean, like if I, you know, if if I had a best friend who had a child, none of none of my friends have children. But if I did, you know, and like I was just like always hanging out with that kid, and that kid was with me all the time, like, and I'm a female, that would still be weird, you know. It's just like. <laughs> That's just weird. You don't let somebody you barely know have all of that unsupervised time with your child, especially if your child is an eight-year-old girl and she's spending this time with an older man. Like, it's just, how do you not have an issue with that? (laughs) Um, And so many people cannot understand why Shamika and Melissa and Antonio and everybody not only allowed this to happen, but encouraged it. Like, they were like, yeah, this is good for Relisha. So, I don't know. What Shamika and all these other people did not know, however, was that Khalil had a very troubled past. Um, He had a felony record for burglary, larceny, and breaking and entering. 
and was imprisoned twice in his life for a total of 17 years. So no convictions as far as like sexual abuse or, you know, any sort of things involving children. But far worse than that, however, was um, Khalil had a reputation for fraternizing with shelter residents, especially young girls. Relisha was not the only little girl that he paid a lot of attention to, but she was definitely like his his main target. Um, but he had been known to buy gifts for and, you know, pay pay a lot of attention to other young girls at the shelter. Um, and it was a complete violation of shelter policy for staff to form these sorts of relationships with residents. It was considered unprofessional and inappropriate. So, I mean, obviously, I guess nobody who worked there knew that this was going on or else he would have gotten fired. Um, so I'm going to note this here because it is extremely relevant later, okay? Khalil was married. His wife's name was Andrea, okay? Yeah. And, and they were both considered to be good, hardworking people just with their, you know, their share of problems. Andrea had battled a drug addiction for a majority of her life, um, but she had fought hard to get clean and stay clean. You know, she was deeply loved by her children and grandchildren. She was a, a good mom, a good grandma. She and Khalil, by all accounts, had a happy marriage, even when Khalil spent 17 years of that marriage behind bars. But by late 2013, early 14, so around the time Khalil met and began grooming Relisha, Andrea and Khalil were having marital issues. And in fact, Khalil fire, filed for divorce the same month that Relisha went missing. So, hmm. yeah, yeah, make of that what you will. Um, and when I say Khalil was grooming Relisha, I mean, this is literally classic textbook definition grooming. I mean, if I were to give someone an example of what grooming is, this is it. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and he's he's exhibiting the behavior of a pedophile. He absolutely is. Um, it's, and, and I mean, it's important to note that there's no proof that he is a pedophile. Um, but, you know, it's just this behavior is just very, very disturbing. My question is, did anyone at the shelter warn Shamika? Like, did anybody think to go to her and be like, hey, you shouldn't let this guy hang out with Relisha so much. He's a creep. Well, but like you said, he w he would have he probably would have been fired had people at the um, shelter knew. Oh, true, true. Yeah. So, so maybe he was better at hiding it this time around. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I don't know if uh, you can put it on anyone else at the shelter if it, if it was against the rules for or yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know. Maybe yeah. he. He could have been talked to like at some point. I mean, I I don't know. How, you you just said that it wasn't allowed, and he could have been fired for it. So I I'm yeah. assuming I'm assuming at most like maybe it was noticed at one point, and he was talked to about it. If anything, yeah, I could see that happening, especially if he was also yeah. kind of doing the same thing with other girls, not yeah. to the same extent as Relisha, but. Yeah, so, yeah, but, but so if, if you, it was a pattern of behavior. Yeah, but if, if if you're talking about he, it was against the rules and he would have been fired, then I'm going to err on the side that, like, maybe no one at the shelter knew about it. Yeah, 
And I, when I, when I said that, I was thinking of like other residents. Like, why didn't other residents warn her? But I'm, but now I'm thinking, well, okay. I mean, oh, you know, this is okay. a highly, this is a highly transient population we're talking about right here. You know, people don't stick around for very long. People stay maybe like one or two nights at the shelter and then they're gone. I mean, you know, so maybe, maybe there was no one there to warn her. Or maybe they did try to warn her and Shamika didn't listen, which I could also see being a possibility considering how she acts later during the investigation. Um, and we will get into that. Um, so like I said before, um, there, there was one group of people who I believe really had Relisha's best interest at heart and did everything within reason to help her, and that is her teachers. Um, you know, she was on their radar as a high-risk child, and they were aware of her living situation. You know, they deserve the credit for raising the alarm bell because if they hadn't noticed Relisha was gone, who knows how long it would have taken for the police to be notified. So at the time that this is all going on, Relisha is enrolled at Payne Elementary School. In February of 2014, she abruptly stops attending school, but her three younger brothers also go to that school and they are still going regularly. Relisha is the only one who stops attending at this point. Um, absences were fairly common for Relisha, but she was gone for a whole week and then another week and then another. Uh, this time period is shrouded in uncertainty, and it is almost impossible to say exactly what happened. However, later in the investigation, the FBI discovered and released a surveillance video from a Holiday Inn Express not too far from the shelter. The video was taken on February 26th, after Relisha had begun her extensive absence from school. The video shows Relisha dressed in a jacket and carrying a plastic shopping bag walking down a hallway closely following Khalil. And like, if you watch the video, it looks like a father and daughter walking together. You know, she's not being forced. She's not being dragged or pulled. She doesn't look scared. She's kind of like doing that, that, that little skip walk that kids do when they're happy and excited. You know what I mean? Yeah. And her, her back is to the camera, so you can't see her face. But I mean, it's clear, it's pretty clear that she is there willingly and she's happy and she's having a good time. Um, so investigators believe there may have been a swimsuit in the bag because Khalil had told Relisha's family that he had taken her to the hotel to attend a pool party there and had gone to buy her a swimsuit first since she did not have one. Can we... I don't even want to think about how fucking creepy it is, the fact that a 51-year-old man took an 8-year-old child to buy a bathing suit. I, I hate that so fucking much. <laughs> oh, <Yeah. laughs> I just think my stomach turned. Now, this is where shit gets a little confusing, okay? So this pool party, right? Yeah. Now, Melissa, Relisha's grandmother, says that Khalil came by the house um, on this day, February 26th, and he already had Relisha with him, and he had come to get the bathing suit, and she said, oh, I don't have one for her, and he said, that's okay, we'll just go buy her one. Um, but Melissa says, yeah, and then Melissa says that's what happened, um, and, uh, but uh, her mother, Shamika, is saying that, um, her mother, Shamika, is saying that Melissa let Relisha go with Khalil. 
So we're already getting two different stories there. A few days later on March 1st, video footage captures Relisha and Khalil in a different hotel walking into a room. This is the last known and confirmed sighting of Relisha. She has never been seen again in person or on video, alive or dead, since March 1st of, 26, of 2014. Investigators have... Is entering mm -hmm. a hotel room? Just entering a hotel room. Here's the thing is that, here's the thing. So this is interesting. They released the footage of Relisha going into the hotel room from February 26th, but they will not show us the footage from March 1st. All they said was that she went into a hotel room. So it's interesting because it's like, okay, maybe there's something else in there that's pertinent to the investigation, and that's why they're not releasing that footage. You know what I mean? But they and they saw, also they go only ahead. saw her go in. They only saw her go in and never come out. Well, so investigators have never revealed whether or not there is footage of Relisha leaving the room, and if so, in what state she was in. So if she left it on her own, if she was carried out, yeah. It's that we don't know that information because it has not been shared yet. I guess that's something that investigators are keeping close to the chest. Okay. And, you know, there, there's a whole host of reasons why that might be. Um, so, like I said, the last time she is seen alive is March 1st on that surveillance footage at a hotel with Khalil. On March 2nd, the very next day, Khalil is seen at Home Depot purchasing a shovel, lie and heavy duty trash bags. Relisha is not with him. That, so, that is huh, that is never That's not good not at all. shopping list. That's basic that's a murder kit. Like if Home Depot had like a murderer section, all that shit yeah, you're, would be you're, in you're, there. Just, you're just missing the rope. You're just missing the rope, yeah. And if anybody's curious as to what lie is, lie speeds up decomposition from what I understand. Or no, it doesn't do that. It, would it hide the smell or what does it do? I'm not really sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> I've, n I've never had to buy a murder kit. Yeah, me, <laughs> <laughs> me neither. Although I, I although, although I should know because I watch enough true crime shows and listen to podcasts. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it does. I think it either like it aids in decomposition in some way, either by speeding it up or by hiding the smell. One of those two things. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's not good. It's not good that he bought those things. Um, let me see. Let me see. Let me see. On March 13th, okay, so at this point, Relisha's been gone for a while, and no one has reported her missing, you know, and she's, she's not with her mother. She's not with her grandmother, but neither of them have reported her missing. Um on March 13th, the counselor from Relisha's school writes a referral to the Department of Child and Family Services, noting that Relisha had missed more than 30 days of school at this point. However, all of these absences were supposedly excused and authorized by her mother, Shamika, who provided a note stating that Relisha was hospitalized due to, a, due to a severe illness and under the care of a one Dr. Tatum. Khalil Tatum, Dr. Tatum, huh. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, acting on the referral, a social worker made contact with, quote, unquote, Dr. Tatum, 
um, and requested that he provide the appropriate documentation to approve Relisha's extended absence and confirm her whereabouts and safety. Because at this point, the school is like, where the fuck is she? What's wrong with her? What do you mean she's in the hospital? Like, you need to prove to us that that's what's going on. Like, finally, somebody is like, where is this kid? You know? Yeah, the school's really stepping up here. They really are. And, I mean, it was required of them to make this referral because she had missed so much school. But at this point, they were like, seriously, what's going on here, and why can't we get a straight answer? Um, Dr. Tatum agreed to meet with the social worker at the shelter where Relisha lived to hand over these documents proving Relisha's illness. And I guess this wasn't totally strange, because remember, this shelter is inside of an old hospital, and they did have a medical center there. So the social worker was like, okay, well, maybe he, you know, since he's a doctor, he goes and works at the shelter sometimes, and he's going to be there, so that's why he wants me to meet him there. It didn't seem that weird at first. But when the social worker arrived, she not only discovered that Dr. Tatum was not there to meet her as promised, but that Dr. Tatum was actually the shelter's janitor, Khalil Tatum, who had ended his shift early that day and left right before the social worker arrived. Tatum is never seen or spoken to again after this day. Well, he is seen. I should say he is seen. But nobody, um, yeah, it, you'll see. You'll see what happens. So he, he, he's essentially missing too? He takes off. Right before the social worker gets there, he takes off. And you want to know what's crazy is that this entire time that Relisha has been missing, he has been going to work. So he's been working at the shelter where Relisha's family lives this entire time. And still, no one has questioned where is Relisha she was last seen with you. I mean, it's insane. Her her family's not doing it? No. Not her mother, not her grandmother, nobody. And and you'll you'll see here now. This is this is where people just go. Are you fucking kidding me with this case? The social worker is of course very confused and concerned. She makes contact with Shamika and is even more disturbed to discover that Shamika cannot confirm her daughter's whereabouts for the last 18 days. So for 18 days, no one in her family has spoken to or set eyes on Relisha. This, of course, harkens back for me to the Casey Anthony case where Kaylee was missing for 31 days and no one said boo about it. And it just doesn't make any sense to me how how you could go for even an hour without seeing or speaking to your child and thinking, huh, I wonder where they are. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, so, I don't know. So basically, Khalil Tatum is like Danny the Nanny, only he's real. Only he's real, and he's very, very awful and very, very bad, yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, Now, this is where things get confusing, okay? So, Shamika claims that she hasn't seen Relisha for this long because Relisha has not been living at the shelter but with her mother, Melissa. And so, Melissa must have been the one who handed Relisha off to Khalil. Um, But Melissa is like, no, I never had Relisha during this time. you know, she she stayed at my house a few times, but I did not hand her off to Khalil. She was already with him when he came by my house that one time to get the swimsuit, and I didn't say anything because she's with him all the time, so I didn't think it was that weird. Here's the thing is that, like I've said before, Relisha could not have left the shelter without Shamika. Remember, kids were not allowed to leave without a parent. 
So this says that at some point, Shamika had to have taken Relisha out of that shelter and either gave her to Melissa, so Melissa is lying, or gave her to Khalil, so Shamika is lying. Someone is lying, but no one is coming forward and admitting it. Everybody is just pointing fingers at each other and playing a big, fucked-up blame-shame game that just confuses everybody even more and does nothing to help Relisha. It's it's really sad. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. And you want to know what's even crazier is that when they confront Shamika with all of this and they're like, look, you don't know where your kid is. Um, Your grandmother doesn't know where your kid is. We can't even find this guy who you're saying she was with last. They've been calling Khalil. He will not answer his cell phone. They're like, we need to do something. And Shamika's like, she's not missing. He didn't take her. Don't put out an Amber Alert. Don't report. Don't do a missing persons report. She's not missing. It's just so. Where I mean, is she? Exactly. Where is she yeah. then? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not. Yeah. I. I don't know. It's just really. It just boggles my mind every single time I. I repeat all of this information. It just still boggles my mind. So. On on the on the day that all of this happens, the police launch a missing person investigation. Um, and that night, the night that all of this goes down, at 10:04 p.m., um, police get a hit on. Um, oh wait, no, they don't know about this yet. So, um, mm-hmm. but that night, that night, Tatum checks into a um, a Red Roof Inn not too far from where he lives. It's a little bit outside of town, but it's still within the area. Um, He is seen with four people, but none of them are Relisha. And less than an hour later, those other three people leave. So that's weird, right? Um, The next morning, one person returns to the hotel and sees um, Khalil's wife, Andrea, laying in the bed. And he just assumes that she's sleeping. So Andrea, um, Khalil's wife, is also with him at this hotel. Um, And he looks inside the room, and he thinks he sees Andrea lying asleep on the bed, but Khalil does not let him come inside. Um, So they, they learn, police learn that Tatum, that Khalil Tatum might be at this hotel because somebody spots his car in the parking lot. So they go to the hotel. They find out what room he's been in. They go into the room. They find Andrea Tatum, Khalil's wife, lying face down on the bed, dead from a shotgun wound to the head. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So they're like, okay, we're pretty sure he did this. Um, so they, you know, at this point, everything is pushed into high speed because now they're like, okay, He's in a state of desperation. If he's willing to kill his own wife to possibly cover up what he's done, then who knows what he's going to be willing to do to Relisha. Um, There were reports that um, Khalil had been seen around a park um, called Kenilworth Park um, on the same day that he had bought the trash bags and shovel and lie. So, That's how police ended up at this park searching it. And they had initially began that search at the park to look for Relisha's remains because at this point they're pretty convinced that Khalil killed Relisha and buried her in the park. Um, They do find a body in the park, but it's not Relisha. 
they okay. find the they find the body of Khalil Tatum inside of a utility shed, dead from a gunshot wound to his head that was self in, uh, self inflicted. What the fuck? Yeah. What so the he kills his wife. Fuck. <laughs> he kills his wife and then he goes and kills himself. Um, and wow. most likely, okay. Okay. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know, uh, right? That's a lot to take in, isn't it? It's um, and you know, and and more than likely, he took to the grave what happened to Relisha. Um, and I mean, the case is basically, it's still open. It's still being actively investigated. They continued to search for Relisha in that park, but they never found anything. They, um, they, there was a river attached to that park. They had divers go into that river. They didn't find anything. Um, they have done extensive digital searches on Khalil's phone and computer um, because for a while the theory was that maybe he had sold Relisha into sex trafficking. Um, and I'm planning on doing a very long, extensive deep dive into um, sex trafficking and human trafficking in the U.S. pretty soon. I want to do like a whole series on that. It's actually a much bigger problem in this country than people realize. A lot of people associate human trafficking with third world countries. Um, but, no, it happens pretty frequently in the U.S. as well. Um, there's a whole network and things like that of people who kidnap children and sell them into sexual slavery. And for a while, police thought maybe this had happened to Relisha, but police no longer believe that because they were unable to find anything on Khalil's um, uh, you know, technologies that would indicate that that's what happened. So police are pretty sure that he murdered her, and the the ongoing theory is that they don't think Khalil had a plan because he seemed to act pretty erratically. Um, he seemed more interested in, like, kind of just, like, keeping appearances up because, like I said before, you know, he's buying the murder kit on March 2nd, and he's not confronted about what's been going on until – March uh, 16th, that's when he disappears and takes off. So during that time, he's still going to work every single day and acting like everything is okay, you know? Um, so people, so what police think is most, most likely happened was that he might have killed Relisha because she threatened to tell people about the abuse that he might have been inflicting on her because people are pretty sure there's a strong possibility that he was sexually abusing her or something like that, or at least grooming her so that he could sexually abuse her. Um, so maybe, you know, she said, I'm going to tell my mom what you're saying or doing, and he uh, panicked and killed her. Maybe he, you know, it was, maybe he tried to, to drug her and accidentally gave her too much. I mean, but there's no way of definitively saying what happened and what's crazier what's crazier than all of that is to this day Shamika Relisha's mother refuses to believe that Khalil had anything to do with her daughter's disappearance she defends him I mean oh it's... okay so so you said uh Relisha wasn't the only girl the only yes. young girl that he would take an interest in have mm -hmm. Has anyone ever talked to any of the other ones and see what they have to say? You know, if, that if it, if it, is – oh, go ahead. 
I'm j- just if they have if they can offer like any insight to what their experience was like with him. I know I know I know he wasn't taking as much of an interest in them as mm-hmm. religion, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. do you know if there's ever been any anyone ever tried to uh talk to them <laughs> to get their perspective on him? Um so there was a um there was a Washington Post article about that um alleging that he had had contact with other girls at the shelter. Um but the way that that was described was that he had never he had never really formed a bond or a relationship with those other girls or with their families. It was more like occasionally he would like talk to them or give them extra food or, you know, very small, inexpensive gifts that he had given to them. Um, and I, I think the parents, the parents of those children, they didn't see an issue with his behavior at the time either. So it was kind of like, it was, it was, again, a hindsight thing, you know. They were like, oh, well, when he was around my children, it didn't seem that weird. He seemed just like a nice guy who wanted to do something nice for a kid in a tough situation. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, because there's the speculation that he might have been abusing her. I was wondering if any other young girl had that story about him. No, no other girl has ever come forward and said he was inappropriate with them, either physically or verbally or um, you know, no no girl has alleged that he tried to touch them or do anything inappropriate with them. So, uh, yeah, so the reason the reason a lot of people think he was sexually abusing Relisha is because why on God's green earth would you spend all of that unsupervised time with a child like that? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And also, um, apparently, remember I said – they had gone to that hotel with the swimsuit to go to a pool party. That's yeah. why he had taken her there. Yeah, there is no confirmation that that pool party, like, was an actual thing. Like, there's there's no confirmation that that party was even a real thing that was happening. So why did he bring her to a hotel? Like, that's just fucking horrible to think about. But it's like, then why was she there with him if there wasn't a pool party? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So... And I mean, I understand that, yeah, it's possible he wasn't sexually abusing her, and we do need to be clear that there's no proof of that. But I don't know. It's just logic and, you know, um, precedent when you look at other cases of pedophiles. It's very similar to this. And I I, I hope that that's not what was going on, but unfortunately I just can't help but believe that that is what was going on. So really quick, I just wanted. to Um, get into the aftermath of all of this. A lot of people, you know, uh, since so many people were so concerned by what had happened to Relisha, um, thankfully and also not thankfully, um, uh, Relisha's three younger brothers were taken from Shanika and Antonio and placed into foster care. So it's like, okay, that's good in a way, but at the same time, all it's doing is starting the cycle all over again. In the aftermath of all of this, you know, Shamika, she's still she's still out there and she still is saying what she's been saying all along, that none of this is her fault and um you know, she she truly does not believe that Khalil Tatum did anything to her. So she thinks this is crazy and Melissa, her mother, believes this as well. 
um, they believe that somebody set up uh, Khalil and that somebody else, a third party, murdered Andrea and then murdered Khalil to make it look like a murder-suicide to frame him. That's their explanation. Well, but then what happened to Relisha? Exactly. And it's just, like, I is, don't understand it, why they keep defending him. But but would that same person be involved in Relisha's disappearance yeah, yeah, they, and death? Yeah, they're saying that that person took Relisha or killed her. Okay. okay. Yeah. So it's just like, but why? That is the most far-fetched theory, and that's what you believe? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. unfortunately, I mean, that is pretty much everything we have that is up to date on this case. It is still open and active. You know, people are willing to take tips and things. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's more than likely that Relisha is dead. Um, and, you know, the more time passes, the harder and harder it becomes to eventually find her, which is why I think this needs to be examined in some way. You know, it's not that old of a case. It's only six years old. Like, it could still be solved. People just need to come forward and say what they know and take responsibility for what they were doing, especially her mother. Her mother really needs to search her soul and I don't know I just hope that one day Shamika finds it in herself to come forward and be like okay this is what happened I haven't been fully truthful you know because I don't feel she has yeah I I don't know either and I mean the thing that still astounds me is the fact that she um signed off those um you know what was I trying to say? She signed off those um, those absences for Alicia for school, and she literally wrote Dr. Tatum on them. And, like, there's been a lot of speculation as to, like, why Shamika did that. And Shamika's excuse for it was, oh, I never wrote Dr. Tatum. I wrote Mr. Tatum, and they confused my M for a D, which how do you confuse an M for a D? That makes no sense. But at the same time, at the same time, okay, so why are you leaving your daughter in the care of a homeless shelter janitor? What sense does that make, Shamika? <laughs> so, so Shamika knows something. And I think the reason she hasn't come forward is because she's worried she's going to get in trouble. And I don't understand why. I don't know. I mean, aren't there things people can do? Like, couldn't they have held her in, in contempt or on the, on obstruction or something. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, what what did they get? They got Casey Anthony on. Uh, they got her on, on providing false information to law enforcement. That was the only thing she was found guilty of. But I think yeah. they could have at least gotten Shamika on that or on obstruction or something. Yeah. 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 Well, so, um, you know, the reason I wanted to bring this case up is because uh, whenever whenever there's a Whenever there's like a um, a Jamie Cloth, you know that girl who went missing and was found. Um, I forget where that was at. I, I, I want to say, I want to say, huh? I want, oh, Wisconsin. <gasps> I think you're right. I think somewhere, it was Wisconsin. Yeah, somewhere. It around was somewhere. There. It was somewhere where uh, white people grow. They definitely in, import white people from Wisconsin. <laughs> Utah, I don't know. <laughs> but 
but yeah, I mean, when you have when you have an adorable, fresh-faced, innocent-looking white girl go missing, I mean, the whole country is in a freaking uproar and panic over it for days and months and how long how long it however long it takes. I mean, look how look how much uh Kaylee Anthony's case exploded. People took one look at that little face and they couldn't help but care, you know? So why wasn't the same thing, why didn't we have the same reaction when Relisha went missing? And I really think it's because she was a poor, homeless black girl. So in a lot of people's minds, it's like, who cares? And that kind of attitude just really needs to change because she was an innocent child. She didn't choose what happened to her. And if more people had given a fuck about her from the very beginning, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Um, so, and it just fucks me up that a sweet little girl is being judged for shit in her life that she had no control over. She had no control over the fact that her family was poor and homeless. Um, she didn't choose to live in that shelter. And she didn't even necessarily choose to have this relationship with Tatum. I mean, she did. But, I mean, Relisha is this innocent, naive little girl who just wants someone's attention and affection. I mean, of course she was going to be all about Khalil paying attention to her. And to blame her for that or hold that against her or any of those other things I mentioned is just, you know, Relisha's disappearance is just as tragic as Casey Anthony, uh, Kaylee Anthony's. It's just as tragic as... um I don't know, Madeline McCann's or any other missing white little girl. So, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it says something that I do my podcast based on unsolved cases. And I am like, I, I try to like look for like the lesser known cases. I know some lesser known cases, but uh, like you mentioned this to me, like if I was familiar with it, I, I thought the name sounded familiar, but I had no idea at all what this was, really. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's because her name has come up more in in recent conversations, you know, due to Black Lives Matter and stuff like this. And, and this is very much a case that people can point to and be like, see, black people are treated differently when it comes to stuff like this. And that's not okay. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um, but I do, I do need to say this, you know, the, the social workers and the teachers and the investigators, police officers, the people who came to realize what had happened, you know, once it was discovered that she was missing, those people really did work those ass, their asses off to find her. You know, I'm not going to hold anything against the police here because the police cared about Relisha more than her mom did when they found out that she was missing. They were the yeah. ones who were out looking for her and wanted to put out an Amber alert while her mom was like, no, she's not missing. So, you know, this is definitely yeah. a case where the police, I believe, really did care. Thank you so much for um, for being on the show with me today. Do you want to plug your social media handle so people know where to find you? Yes, uh, you can follow me on Instagram at uh, still unknown podcast. Yep. And Twitter at still unknown pod. I I get those two mixed up, but Instagram <laughs> is still unknown podcast. Yes. Twitter is still unknown pod. Okay, gotcha. And I and I have a still pretty recent uh created Facebook group. Mm. 
Uh, it is still unknown fan discussion group. Something See, you like have that. a fan. You have a fan club, bro. I do not. <laughs> I have. Yeah, I have a fan club with like thirteen people. That's still more fans than I have in my fan club. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, there, there's not a lot going on there, but I I'll try. I'll work on like getting that more active, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that is something there if you want to join the group. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. And um, oh, what was I about to say? Shoot. And uh, yeah, just you know, anybody listening out there, you know, support support your up and coming podcast like Still Unknown Podcast and Hear No Evil and Forensic Miles and um, uh, other ones that you might come across on Instagram because. You know, we're all just out here trying to make it <laughs> in the world yeah. of true crime podcasts. And, yeah, you know, and we, we appreciate every single little listen. We really, really do. <laughs> all right. Well, um, if that's everything, I think we're going to call it a day, my friend. Thank you so much again for being on the show. This was a ton of fun, which, again, sounds weird to say. But it was. <laughs> you know what is it's it's was fun yesterday and it was fun again today and Yes. I yeah, I really am excited to do more with you. Me too. So everybody keep an eye out for that because Here No Evil and Still Unknown podcasts are yeah, we're buddies now. We're gonna be doing fun stuff. Yes. Yeah.